starting today a two-parter looking at homosexuality. Um, so just to start by mapping out what we're going to cover in these two lectures. So we're going to note the definition that is given to us in the Catechism. We're going to note that the Catechism defines this uh, in terms of those who have an inclination to this. So it's not just about the focus on homosexual acts, which actually if we look at the Catholic tradition, that's kind of all that's really looked at. Whether someone's got an attraction to that isn't really given much attention in the tradition just what the activity itself signifies or doesn't. So we're going to note the catechism defines this in terms of relationships, not just between those of the same sex, but those who have an attraction to that. So with that, the catechism is also making a distinction between acts and inclinations. So, if we try and conceptualize this, you can imagine sex with a woman. Um, you can imagine sex with a blow-up doll. Now, there I'm using sex in an analogous sense. It's when I'm saying sex, but in terms of what, what's the guy getting out of it, the kind of sexual satisfaction, release, sex with a woman, sex with a blow-up doll, sex with a sheep. Um, so that is a thing that happens. You won't get it often in confession. I think I've had it three times in 23 years. Um, always a thing, at least in my experience, referred to with incredible uh, embarrassment and humiliation. You never need to explain to the person that this is wrong. Um, and one of those sins, um, among the things you need to learn in confessional practice is never to laugh at the penitent. Yeah. Because um, even if at some kind of objective level this might be something to make a joke about, uh, the person is in a state of subjugation in some sense in that dynamic. So you always need to be thinking never to laugh. And sometimes people t confess very serious things, but just in a slightly weird way or with a weird voice or whatever, never to laugh at the penitent. Um, so it's one of the things I sometimes tell myself going in, you know, never laugh. Anyway, where am I going with this? Um, sex with a woman, sex with a doll, sex with a sheep. Sex with a man. Um, what I'm mapping out here is there's a way of thinking of all of these where it is just an act, regardless of the question of whether there's an inclination. Just you're wanting satisfaction, release. Any of these are going to check that box. Sex with a child also. And when we look at human history, society, 
practice down the ages, there are many examples where these things are happening not because men are attracted to that, but they're just imposing their desire for sex on whatever is available in front of them. Now that's different from when there's an inclination going on there. So an inclination to woman is the default for a man. An inclination to a doll. So you all know what I mean when I use the word fetishes. So there are people who get a sexual arousal, a sexual excitement about material objects for whatever reason. For somebody it might be somehow shoes get them excited or, or weird random things. It's possible for someone to have a fetish about a blow-up doll and somehow that to excite them in a way that's different from a person exciting them. Bestiality, sex with animals or a sheep, um, similarly, you know, this, I've never come across this, so this I'm sure is a very rare condition, but it's possible to be somehow attracted to somehow, as a type of fetish, sex with an animal per se. And then in the context of homosexuality, a man having an inclination to sex with a man or a man having an inclination to sex with a child. So the catechism makes a distinction between the act and the inclination. So the catechism is very clear in condemning as sinful sex um, in any of these four categories dolls, sheep, man, child, if you're a man. Um, the inclination to any of these is not a sin, but it is an inclination to something that isn't right, isn't, is a sin. Um, there's something disordered there. Now, um, I have been told before by those who have same-sex attraction that in kind of making this sort of comparison, I'm viewing this in a very heteronormative, heterosexual manner. That there are those who have an attraction from, of a man to a man whose whole psychology and makeup views things differently. Um, what I'm trying to start here with is just making the distinction here between the inclination and the act itself. So there's, there's a difference. We are going to be thinking more broadly about this activity in the context of when there is an inclination to this. Okay, we're going to note some terminology. Um, I'm going to, in particular, 
use the terminology a person with same-sex attraction We're going to note the terms objective disorder the term intrinsically disordered and perhaps most offensive to some the term unnatural We're going to notice various issues behind all this that on one level this isn't simply a neutral condition. You know, you'll sometimes hear people say, well, some people are heterosexual, some people are homosexual. Uh, you know, the thing itself is neutral, it's what you do. Well, that doesn't really fit with the vision of the Catholic faith. Um, so if there is something disordered in it, yes, a person only actually sins if they're engaging in the actions, but there isn't something neutral about the state. With that, we'll note the question of effective maturity. So obviously this is a term we use a lot in our seminary formation. As a background, the whole question of the meaning of sex. So we've talked about procreation, um, same-sex sex isn't capable of procreation. So there's something about the meaning of everything we've been talking about so far in the course that just isn't in that activity. The other meaning of sex being a union, a complete union, of those that are different, of those that are complementary. Last time I wrote complementary on the board, I spelt it wrong, as if it was a compliment. Yes, um, complementary as in completes the other. We will briefly note the question, disputed question about what causes the condition, whether it's possible for there to be a cure, the question of, or the issue of unjust, but also just discrimination. And then, relating to what we looked at last time, civil law and same-sex marriages. So there's quite a lot we've got here, yeah, and in just two lectures. And where we're going to 
end our presentation is on the call to chastity. And this is a big thing that gets forgotten in a lot of all of these conversations, um, you know, in terms of being compassionate, being accompanying and so forth. What's the goal in any of those conversations, accompaniment? To lead somebody to not just an action, uh, not just to being welcome, but a whole life where chastity is possible for everyone, whether you have a same-sex attraction or whatever. So lots here we're going to be covering, yeah? Um, and a lot of what I'm going to be talking about, I know at one level you will have heard and read for yourselves in different places, um, but trying to pull all that together in a single thing in a lecture in this course. Yeah, okay. Different, uh, complete, different, complementary. short time I've been talking the sun has moved so all right so let's turn to my handout and start there and let's start with a definition from the catechism homosexuality refers to relations between men or between women who experience an exclusive or predominant sexual attraction towards persons of the same sex. So that's the category we're looking at today. The rest of this page is all about terminology. What words are we going to use? So say some terms that define a person by this condition um, Define them as if that was the most important thing about them. Uh, so I say the word gay, the word homosexual, the word queer. And I footnote there a book recently published called Why I Don't Call Myself Gay. Um, because that word is then saying that defines everything about me. Um, and I say sadly we must acknowledge that for many persons their experience of life is such this condition does seem to define their whole experience. Let's say there, for example, people who tell you of their same-sex attraction in the first five minutes of talking to them. Uh, and as a priest, I've had that many times, including people that are trying to be chaste, but somehow the most important thing they have to tell you in the first few minutes um, is uh, I'm gay or I suffer with same-sex attraction, whatever term they're going to use. And obviously there's something very tragic to, for someone to have any condition where that somehow defines them so much, that's what they've got to say, the label they define themselves by. And so what's wrong with gay, homosexual, queer is trying to sum up a whole person just by that word. What's a better term? Well, I note the phrase, a homosexual person. So there, the term is a person with the clause 
subdefining it as homosexual. Uh, Michael, could you read that quote? And this is from the CDF's letter to bishops on the pastoral care of homosexual persons that came out in 1986. The human person made in the image and likeness of God can hardly be adequately described by a reductionist reference to his or her sexual orientation. Everyone living on the face of the earth has personal problems and difficulties, but challenges to growth, strengths, talents, and gifts as well. Today, the church provides a badly needed context for the care of the human person when she refuses to consider the person as a heterosexual or a homosexual and insists that every person has a fundamental identity, the creature of God, and by grace, his child and heir to the eternal life. So I note the 86 document, uh, Homosexualitas Problema, thus always uses the term homosexual persons, not homosexuals. So I was in seminary in the 90s, that document came out in the late 80s. That was the terminology that was in vogue then. Um, and I can remember you know, we were told, don't refer to homosexuals, refer to homosexual persons. I think as the documents and terminology has refined, even that I think actually still isn't really suitable. Um, so I've said there, probably the best term in use in Catholic circles is a person with same-sex attraction. So they're primarily described as a person. Um, I say a less positive phrasing that you'll sometimes have is a person suffering with same-sex attraction. So that phrasing might indicate we're pastorally helping them. You know, they're suffering with this, so I'm helping them with this. Um, but that it's primarily a person. A person with this, just as you might say, this is a person with cancer or a person with an eating disorder, um, but it's a person. Um, last point I make on the page, I say, this said Catholic terminology hasn't been entirely consistent in this regard. I say some refer, you know, whether they're bishops or whoever, to homosexuals, some refer to same-sex attraction, and, and you know, Pope Francis, who uh, on many occasions is very solid on this, but then he will also sometimes say gay people, um, which is kind of utterly bypassing all the careful nuancing of terminology. Um, and I would guess he is trying to reach people using how they refer to themselves. Um, Basic point on this page though is about terminology. Comments, reflections, you've heard all these terms. The issue I'm trying to flag up here about the suitability of the terms and defining a person by the condition by using the word label gay. I've not used the word sodomite, faggot, uh, anything like that on this page, okay? So there are some things that we're just not even going to, uh, to consider here. Um, if you read books by William May and Griset, um, they will be very upfront about using the word sodomy and so forth. Um, 
And I think, if I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is something wrong and we're going to describe it using words that indicate that. Um, so there can be a way of kind of pussyfooting around the whole issue that you use such uh, careful terms all the time that you don't indicate it's problematic. Um, the opposite problem though that on this page I've been trying to point not to limit a person by putting a label on them that that's all there is that's of significance about you. What are you? You're gay, that's you. No, you're a person. And you might have this condition and that condition and that condition and among those you have same-sex attraction. Like, is this something we need to do then with like every condition? Like somebody's a sociopath, like we call them a sociopath. You know what I mean? Like, do we need to like a person with whatever you, how do you describe that thing? Because it seems like you're just adding words and it's going to take forever to say anything. Yeah. Like I get, especially with this issue because it is like a hot topic thing. Yeah. I get that, but then like with other lots of other. That's a good point. I suppose as a pastor, when I'm visiting people in a mental illness hospital, it's important for me to be thinking this is a person, mm -hmm. not you're mad, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so that there is a sense in which I think this holds with everything. But I do take your point that you can get a linguistic structure that is perfectly formulated, but so long it's unusable. Um, but if we use the word gay, queer, homosexual, we're kind of buying into their narrative of those that want to say, this is the thing that defines me, therefore you've got to engage with me just on these terms. And we're actually wanting to say, no, there's something more significant about you that that we understand in the light of the more significant thing. You are a person, you are a child of God, you're in his image and likeness and, and so forth. And that's kind of because, and a further thing, because we don't, when we go to talk to somebody, we don't say, hi, I'm a heterosexual. It's not a common thing in our language to tell everybody with whom we sleep or, right. you know. Or our thinking of sleeping. Or our thinking of sleeping, yeah. yeah. So, um, so by making it more about the person rather than the actions that they incline towards, then um, we see them differently and help them to see themselves. And I think that's the real thing here, to help them to see themselves differently. Um, in a similar way that someone who suffers from obesity or whatever, to treat them in a way that they don't make that the thing about them, even though it might be a very dominant part of their whole personal narrative. Okay, so that's page one, terminology. How to refer to someone in this context. Page two and three are really, uh, what would we say, meaty, offensive, controversial in terms of looking at some of these other terms. 
And so as I asked the question at the top of the page, why is homosexuality a problem? And obviously that's a pretty aggressive, direct way of even phrasing it. I say it's an orientation to use the sexual fa faculty for something other than its true purpose. So, Daniel, could you quote from the Catechism first there? Homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They are contrary to the natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine affective and sexual complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. Okay, three things to note there that I put in bold. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. So the whole procreative meaning that we've been talking about it just is not possible in a same-sex act. Don't proceed from a genuine affective com and sexual complementarity. I'm going to unpack that in some of the rest of these notes, but that is a big part of what our understanding here is going on with. So that relates to some terms I'm plucking out there. Objective disorder and intrinsically disordered. So I note repeated church documents refer to homosexual acts as intrinsically disordered and the homosexual inclination as an objective disorder. As I say, many commentators find these terms objectionable. Um, I don't know if you need to footnote somebody saying that, but I'm sure you are familiar with a lot of whatever recent synod discussions or whatever, um, people saying to even use these words is offensive, unsuitable. So why do the church documents use these words? They don't use them randomly. So I asked you to read for today uh, an article by Melina. Um, David, could you read the block quote there from him on this question, if we fail? If we fail to make this last point about homosexuality being objectively disordered, compassion and respect can become ambiguous. An acceptance that makes no judgment about homosexual orientation and that supposes it to be natural or at least unchangeable, if not actually part of personal identity, can slide into toleration of the acts that follow from the orientation. At the same time, there would be no good reason calling homosexuals to chastity. To do so would be tantamount to imposing an extrinsic limit on an orientation that is deemed to be natural, innate, and constitutive of personal identity, and that has no legitimate outlets. It thus seems that whoever denies that homosexual inclination is an objective disorder faces the following dilemma, toleration and approval of homosexual activity or despair. So to why despair? Well, you're somehow saying it's not subjectively disordered, but it's forbidden. That's a position of despair. Or if it isn't inherently disordered, objectively disordered, why wouldn't you tolerate it? Why wouldn't you approve it? In the condition, in the whole activity that it's inclined towards, there's just something in that inclination to it that is disordered, that isn't right on some level. Um, 
So we're not doing justice to the whole situation if we avoid saying objectively disordered, even if uh, it's a very loaded term. And let's try and sum that up with a slightly different phrasing of the same thing. Say, sexuality is not neutral between heterosexual and homosexual. Rather, sexuality is a reality with a built-in purpose and function. Based on gender differentiation and complementarity, in order towards procreation in male, female, genital, and personal union. Kind of everything we've been looking at the course thus far has been saying this again and again and again. So sexuality is not neutral between these two questions, heterosexual and homosexual. Comments on that point? When I was in seminary, um, it was fashionable then in many circles for people to say, well, a seminarian, it doesn't matter whether he's heterosexual or homosexual as long as he's going to be chaste, um, as if it was an utterly neutral condition and didn't have anything in it that was problematic. And that's bypassing the question of what homosexuality implies that there's something there that isn't just neutral. It's an inclination to something that isn't normal, which is kind of taking us on to our next point, which is going to be the word natural and unnatural. And maybe if we're thinking what are going to, what's the most offensive part of um, traditional Catholic terminology here, the word unnatural. So this page, I'm trying to explain what that means, natural versus unnatural. I say the human person has various natural inclinations to the ends that fulfill our nature. An individual person, however, can be inclined to what is contrary to his true nature. And I then first quote St. Thomas on this. Oh, well, so these are two quotes from Molina, um, where he's quoting St. Thomas. Um, would you read the first bullet point? What is not normal? What is not, what is not normal to the common condition can appear to be natural to the individual because of the disordered disposition of his being. St. Thomas points this out in relation to unnatural pleasures. What is contrary to the nature of the species becomes natural to this individual Okay, so uh, it's not at some level proper for me to be inclined towards 10 donuts. Yeah, to use my favorite food example. Um, but I can habituate myself such that 10 donuts just looks normal. It becomes, per accident, for me, it looks normal. Even though, it, generally speaking, for the species, for my nature, it isn't. Um, To be attracted sexually to someone of your same sex is in the same category. For your nature, it isn't natural to you, but to the individual, it can somehow seem natural. Christopher, can you read the next block, 
bullet point, which is again Melina. Catholic doctrine defines homosexual acts as intrinsically disordered inasmuch as they activate the sexual dynamism of persons without the unitive meaning of total self-gift to the other, which can be realized only in the matrimonial union of man and woman, and openness to the procreative meaning whereby human sexuality is further ordered to the good of the child. Okay, so that's natural and unnatural. First look at that question. Next I'm quoting from the Vatican um, on this distinction between acts and inclinations. So among the key points, just because someone has an inclination to something evil doesn't make them evil. Their acts, in terms of moral evaluation, are the only thing we can morally speak about. That's what moral is about, is about actions. So there is a bullet point there, quoting from um, a Vatican document 2005 um, on, from the Congregation for Catholic Education, the instruction concerning criteria for the discernment of vocations with respect to persons of homosexual tendency. So basically, should we be ordaining someone with the same-sex attraction? It makes this point about acts and tendencies there. Uh, Daniel, could you read this for us, please? The Catechism distinguishes between homosexual acts and homosexual tendencies. Regarding acts, it teaches that sacred scripture presents them as grave sins. The tradition has constantly considered them as intrinsically immoral and contrary to the natural law. Consequently, under no circumstance can they be approved. Deep-seated homosexual tendencies, which are found in a number of men and women, are also objectively disordered and for these same people often constitute a trial. Such persons must be accepted with respect and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. They are called to fulfill God's will in their lives and to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross the difficulties they encounter. Okay, I then try and break that down Thomistically as a good Thomist. So the actions. So say moral good and moral evil lie in acts because acts proceed from a free will. So it's only the willing of something that makes it moral. If something isn't willed, we don't use the word moral about it. Passions, so say tendencies, are not moral per se. According to the Catechism, in themselves passions are neither good nor evil, they're only morally qualified to the extent that they effectively engage reason or will. I note then, quoting Molina again, a disposition can be assigned a moral quality analogically insofar as it favors a certain orientation. So therefore an inclination, a passion is evil analogically because it moves you towards an action that is evil. So, actions versus inclinations. Acts, we can properly speak of morally, morally good, morally evil, or morally neutral. Inclinations, we also use that terminology, but analogically. Because an inclination isn't yet something willed. And it's the willing of it 
that makes it moral or not moral. Comment? I'm trying to pull things apart in detail here to, to go through what's here. Okay, last point on this page. Inclinations to sin and unnatural inclinations. And the key point here is not all inclinations to sin are unnatural inclinations. So actually my example of 10 donuts, that is a natural inclination, but out of measure. Some things were just are an inclination that is just, we use this word, unnatural in itself. So what do I say? I say many other inclinations are disordered due to concupiscence. So to gluttony, to promiscuity, to being a workaholic, um, all kinds of things we can look at in yourself, in humans, there are disordered inclinations. I say this said the homosexual inclination is an example of an inclination to something unnatural. Say a, a sexual act is unnatural when its defect lies in the nature of the act per se, rather than some deforming context. So following St. Thomas and uh, Emmanuel's, as a footnote there, some natural sins against chastity include fornication, a sex with an unmarried person, adultery, rape, abduction, incest, and sacrilege. Whereas unnatural sins against chastity include masturbation, bestiality, sodomy, and contraception. Noting there that perfect sodomy, as it's termed, is between two men. Uh, whereas if you have engaged in sodomy with your wife, that's imperfect sodomy, um, anal sex with your wife. So what's meant by the term unnatural? Um, unnatural doesn't mean more serious. So if you look at that list, it might look on that list as if masturbation is unnatural, so it must be worse than rape or incest, which are natural. Natural versus unnatural doesn't mean it's more or less serious. It's something about where the origin of classifying the evil lies. In the natural sins, there's some deforming context that makes an action that per se is natural evil. Whereas in the other category, there's something about the nature of the act itself that has been violated rather than just some context, just. And the context can be very significant. Would pedophilia um, for female children, would that be under natural or unnatural? It's a good question. So the fact it's not on the list implies I didn't find it in a manual. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's, it's good to even ask the question because it's, it's clarifying what does it mean. So back to the question, 
let's say it's a natural sin against chastity, very clearly that doesn't mean it's less wrong. It might be much more grave. So, you know, the Catechism, when it talks about mortal sin and grave matter, some things are more grave than others, even though they're all mortal sin. Um, the deforming context of an inappropriate age is very serious. Um, that list would imply a man having sex with an eight-year-old boy is clearly unnatural. An eight-year-old girl? I didn't find it in the manuals, so it just wasn't covered. Um, how would we, if you wanted to argue that it was unnatural, you'd be saying the body isn't yet ready, developed, disposed for that act. Which isn't just a deforming context, but is actually something about the act itself, and thus it would be unnatural. Whereas conversely, if you were going to say it was natural, you'd say the structure of the female body, in an, even in an immature girl, is still ordered towards that but with the deforming context of her age. On one level, whether it's natural or unnatural, on one level isn't important because it doesn't tell us whether it's more or right wrong. Um, so that's an important thing I'm trying to make clear to you here. This doesn't mean it's more or less serious. Because there'd be a way of phrasing this that would say, well, rapists are better people than homosexuals because their sins are natural. That definitely isn't what the church is saying. What this word natural is saying relates to the question of the, act the activity being disordered, intrinsically disordered, not just disordered by some context, but by the very activity itself. There isn't something that you can change in the context where it then becomes okay. And the attraction to it is therefore intrinsically disordered as well. And so on my list up here, Sex with a woman is a natural inclination. If you are inclined to any of these, these are just all four just unnatural as an inclination as well as an act. You will read liberal commentators, say, attacking St. Thomas on something like this and saying just how utterly um, wrong St. Thomas is because he thinks um, that rape, he, he disvalues women so much that he thinks rape is less serious than sodomy. 
and that just doesn't follow. That isn't what he's saying. It's how he's categorizing the origin of what's labeling uh, what's wrong, not whether on a sliding scale of gravity one is more or less wrong. All clear on that point. Okay, over the page then. Now when I drew up these notes, I was, I realized I could have written a great amount on this question, the cause of the homosexual orientation. And I've led there, just quoting from the catechism, its causes as yet unknown. Uh, Catechism says, its psychological genesis remains largely unexplained. So the catechism is saying there is a condition that gets this name homosexuality, not just homosexual acts. But what's its cause, its genesis? Largely unexplained. I then note four possible causes. A, genetics. Uh, so you'll often hear people say, well, I was just born like this. And there'll be many studies out there that will try and claim that they've kind of found a gay gene. I say, however, uh, I note a few footnotes that would point you to some things in this regard. There isn't really any scientific evidence for this. Among the clearest being many cases of identical twins where one twin with the same gene as the other has same-sex attraction and the other doesn't. So to say it's genetic doesn't seem really to work. I say, however, many human abnormalities have genetic causes. Thus, there's no logical reason as a Catholic why the homosexual condition might not have a genetic origin. So, we as Catholics shouldn't box ourselves into a position where we've argued it can't be genetically caused. Okay, it could be genetically caused. There are many things that aren't healthy, aren't right, that are genetically caused. But the science actually, despite there being a kind of whole political movement desire to find a genetic cause, hasn't found a genetic cause. And if you read different bits of the literature, they run in slightly different trajectories with this. So you know the whole eugenics movement whereby you seek to remove weaker, more undesirable parts of society. Uh, so Planned Parenthood and Margaret Singer were um, you know, kind of pioneers for this as a, as a mindset that we want a, a better humanity uh, and abortion being one of the ways we can achieve this. Um, so that you would want to foster intelligent people having more children and discourage stupid people having children and so forth. Um, racially with the Nazis, that went in, in their direction with the, the Uberman and such. Um, so one concern that you sometimes read is, well, if they found a gay gene, then parents might start aborting all children found in the womb to have that. So there's, among some circles, a desire not to find such a gene, 
Whereas others are trying to say, well, we can justify us being the way we are if we find that it's a genetic cause and therefore you can't criticize me for having this inclination. So there's kind of both trajectories out there in the political discourse. The science isn't anywhere like concluded, conclusive either way. Do you see my point though about from a Catholic perspective, we should kind of be okay with either being possible, a genetic cause or not a genetic cause. Okay, we can comment again when we go through all these. B, um, exposure to hormonal imbalances while still in the womb. This is uh, a more particular bit of research, but does seem to have some strong indications that during the development of the child in the womb, various hormones are released uh, during that at different stages, at different amounts. Sometimes that hormonal release is imbalanced and the child will grow, mature and come out born in a different way. It wasn't a genetic cause, but they are therefore born this way. Um, there's one study that claims that the ratio of the length of your different fingers, this one and that one, that relates to a hormonal uh, balance or imbalance during your development would therefore indicate whether you have same-sex attraction. So next time in your, you're in the refectory sat next to someone and they're holding their spoon, you can... Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, anyway, so, so there is actually some scientific evidence indicating this. Um, so you would be born that way, but you didn't have a genetic cause that way. Again, what does that do with identical twins who would both have had the same hormonal thing and sometimes one twin has same-sex attraction and one doesn't? C, completely different category, psychological upbringing. I say in particular, a failure to effectively identify with members of your own gender. For example, a failure to adequately bond with your father. Might this explain young men who feel attracted to older men? So I'd have to say, I look at that from the outside and that just looks weird to me but I just do know that is one of these common categories, young men who are sexually attracted to some kind of father figure. Other example, failure to bond with other children of your own gender. So in your childhood years, your teenage years, instead of feeling an identity with other boys, you feel different from the other boys. You don't have that identity. So might this explain men who feel consistently attracted to young men, i.e. attraction to males of the age when such male-male peer self-identification would normally occur, occur, but has somehow failed to happen. So there's somehow an inner dynamism still yearning to find that affirmation, that identity with the other of the same gender, because it never 
kind of settled itself and felt right in the upbringing. And so it's still being sought for as the years go by. So there are various books and studies that would look at cases of someone who in adulthood is identifying as having same-sex attraction and there are these things in their upbringing where something isn't quite in place. D would be what I would lump for as an explanation, a combination of all of the above. I no single one of the above ex explains all individuals. Might, for example, someone whose same-sex attraction is caused predominantly by psychological upbringing uh, be more likely to be helped by therapy than someone whose causes were physical. So therapy, psychological therapy, helps people deal with things usually in their upbringing. Um, if that is the cause in an individual's same-sex attraction, then therapy would seem to be able to help and address that. But if the cause is genetic or hormonal in the womb, how would psychological therapy be able to help that? And might that explain why sometimes um, therapy cures some people, but it's utterly unable to help other people? It might depend what is the predominant causation in a different individual. Okay, linked with this, therefore, as I've kind of already touched on, is the question of curing homosexuality. I say, the fact that the homosexual inclination is transitory in some people and mixed in others, mixed in the sense, you know, they're bisexual, that yes, attracted to men, but also sometimes have sex with women, um, might be married with four children, but also goes out at the weekend to a gay bar, um, might that support the notion that it is best seen as a psychological condition that can be treated? And now, however, many psychological conditions cannot be cured, even if they can be partially healed. Uh, I note and footnote that success rates in therapy, psychological therapy for curing homosexuality are variously estimated as at between 30 and 60%. And then quote directly, the effectiveness rate is similar to those of other addictive or chronic disorders, such as depression, substance abuse, or smoking. Um, and I then make the doctrinal note, the coherence of the Catholic position on same-sex attraction does not rely on the ability of same-sex attraction to be cured, that many conditions simply cannot be cured. So someone being an alcoholic, you know, you can get therapy that can kind of help with that to some ways. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous can give methodologies to help people uh, engage with that condition, but it's very, generally speaking, um, alcoholism is seen as a condition you have for life. Uh, it won't go away. You can just manage it. 
Um, is that the predominant model to say we're the same about some of the homosexual inclination? Thirty to sixty percent success rate doesn't seem very high, or does it? Um, if you're in the thirty percent, that's pretty good. Um, but so among the dangers here, I don't want you going out saying um, you can be cured of this. There's treatment out there, um, and hinge your whole rationale for the call to chastity by saying you can be cured of this therefore you shouldn't live this way um, sometimes there are things in us that we can't cure that we just have to manage if you are talking with a person with same-sex attraction should, should you suggest some kind of counseling or therapy if they're like like okay how do i deal with this what do I, is that something you suggest and say hey it might work you say, how do you take that? In my experience, it's always been one of the things I've put on the table. With the proviso that there's very few people out there uh, qualified, competent to offer that. Um, and in many countries, many states, it's illegal. So how you actually find a person who's going to offer you that therapy when actually the state has said, if you label it that way, um, that's a crime. Um, but it's certainly one of the things I, I put on the table. Um, in the footnotes there, um, footnote 16, um, you can see that the first book I quote there is called The Battle for Normality. That is, uh, you can see it's an oldish book now, but still in print. Um, it's kind of a self-help guide by a psychologist for how to kind of manage this within yourself. And you know, there are many self-help guide books for psychological conditions of all kinds. Um, and I have given that book to some people who have found it helpful. Um, but the question of how deep-seated it is in someone is going to make a difference to how much it can help. Um, Do you know if there's any difference in um, like the suspected causes of homosexuality in men versus women? I don't know. And, so, and in part because the studies are very so politically clouded, um, if not semi-illegal in many places, that it's difficult to get a proper study of these things. But I don't think you need to have read much to know that it is just an utterly different thing, same-sex attraction in women and in men, just as sexuality in men and women is very different. So for men, it's much more frequently linked with promiscuity than it is in women. In women, it's much more about affectivity than about genital activity. Um, same-sex marriage, female same-sex marriages are much more likely to endure than male ones. 
where the male ones will tend to be more about kind of making a political statement and the desire to kind of even pretend to lifelong commit is much smaller in male same-sex unions. Um, so there aren't real studies, but anecdotally, I think it plays out that the difference between men and women, same-sex attraction in men and women is just very different. Yeah? In point C, it only gives examples of um, males. Yeah. Is that more predominantly male issue? Or is it more the data? I think it's the data, but it does seem to be more of a male issue. But I don't know if that's just the data. Um, okay, because it, it seems like if it was probably male, would the success rate be skewed higher towards males versus females? And if it's higher than that psychological aspect? And I don't know. Um, and when you try and look for research in this, because of the political clouding of the whole debate, there's just not that much out there. Um, or not, not stuff that you could say this is definitively shown such and such. Um, so I've pointed in a couple random footnotes there, some things where you can read people saying certain things, um, but none with a weight that's this is proved such and such. Which is why what I'm trying to say here is our Catholic position doesn't hinge on any one of these um, scientific explanations of cause or possible cure. Um, and that's why the broader sense of understanding what does disordered mean? Well, it's part of all humans since the fall have a disorder within us. And this is one of the many types of disorders. But by saying it's unnatural as a disorder rather than just a natural disorder to something that is out of quantity and whatever, um, it is a particular type of disorder. But all humans have a disorder. So that we, in the process of conversion, in the call to holiness, we manage our disorders, we get healing for them, but we never expect someone to have concupiscence go away, have disorder go away. Um, I know you're on the, the eighth mansion, but of all seven. Um, Okay, before moving on, thoughts. So we've covered quite a bit here. Um, we have talked about natural and unnatural, objective disorder, intrinsic disorder, um, cause, cure. This might be a little bit of a tangent, but recent um, writings, some Bible scholarship um, have suggested that the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was more about yeah. them being unwelcoming towards the visitors rather than the actions mm -hmm. involved. Um, so what might you say to that as far as definition or yeah. um, the direction they're trying to head? 
you're all familiar with that as a debate or claim by certain commentators. So um, they're not made welcome at Sodom. Abraham leaves and fire and brimstone rain down on Sodom. So some have claimed it was nothing to do with the sodomy going on. Uh, it was the fact that they were made unwelcome. Well, we don't refer to the sin of inhospitality as sodomy. There's, there's a reason in the tradition that that label goes with, you might say, a particular act that was deeply inhospitable. Um, to take these visitors Abraham and his family uh, and seek to, to sodomize them. Um, in the text itself um, is very clear that uh, the desire for same-sex sex is the predominant thing going on in the passage. So when even the daughters are being offered as an alternative, that's not because that's somehow being wanted, but somehow in the text indicating that is what was some of the real activity going on in that whole dynamic. So I don't think even looking at the text, that really is a coherent position. But I think for us as Catholics, it almost doesn't matter because it's the broader tradition, Jewish oral tradition, Christian written and oral tradition that gives meaning to all of that, not just the single exegesis. Whereas if you're a fundamentalist Protestant, you've got to hinge everything on that text. Um, so similarly, passage of St. Paul, where he talks about effeminate men, is he really meaning men who engage in same sex with other men, or is he just meaning somehow unmanly men? Um, for us as Catholics, we don't need to get too caught up about the exact significance of a particular word. There's a broader context there that the tradition has been unanimous about. And particularly the Christian tradition coming out when we encountered the Greeks and the Romans, particularly the Greeks for whom this was all deemed natural. Um, we didn't go along with that. We said, no, this is where we are different from you. We don't say this. And there's nowhere in the early Christian narrative of that encounter where Christians were going along with that. So our position doesn't rest on a single exegesis of that one text. But I think even in that text itself, um, the claim of inhospitality just doesn't really cut it. It's, it's almost laughable to try and politically read that in there. Any other significant tangents? You're right, that's a tangent, but it's a relevant one. I, you'll note in these texts, I've not got any scriptural exegesis. I kind of touched on those or attempted to earlier in the course. Where are we? Okay, let's, page five. I'm gonna cover this a little more briefly. Um, maybe come back to it next lecture. So we've got two lectures on this, on the same bundle of notes. Bring these notes, therefore, to our next class. 
also bring the bundle of notes from our previous lecture on civil law and marriage because there were some pages at the end there that I didn't really go through that weren't essential um, but I think we'll have some time in the next lecture to go through that in, in union with page seven onwards of these notes is talking about civil law and same-sex marriage so there's a connection there uh, also in our next class um, Dr. Cahal will be sitting in it's time for my annual uh, biannual review uh, so um, if you want to embarrass me or not the next lecture is your opportunity uh, if you want me to stay on then uh, try and look like you are engaged with what I'm saying <laughs> So I should bring my pillow. <laughs> yeah, that would be really helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, briefly starting on page five. Unjust discrimination. So the Catechism says every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. But just discrimination. So the word discriminate. Um, I don't footnote a dictionary, but what does it mean? To recognize a distinction, to perceive the difference in or between. So homosexual persons um, or persons with same-sex attraction. And here I'm quoting, as I, you can follow in the footnotes, various documents from the CDF at different times. Should not be allowed to adopt children should be restricted from certain aspects of youth work, should not be admitted to priestly formation if their condition is deep-seated, whereas if a transitory condition, if it has not been overcome for at least three years. And why? Because their condition lacks effective maturity and gravely hinders them from correctly relating to men and women. One must in no way overlook the negative consequences that can derive from the ordination of persons with deep-seated homosexual tendencies. They should not be given recognition in same-sex marriage and should not be given legal recognition in de facto unions. All that said, um, in terms of unjust discrimination, the church condemns mistreatment of persons with same-sex attraction then quoting the CDF again, it is deplorable that homosexual persons have been and are the object of violent malice in speech or in action. The intrinsic dignity of each person must always be respected in word, in action, and in law. Next lecture, I'm going to start again on this page. So everything that's been packaged or listed there in terms of just discrimination. Um, look at that, think about that, and we'll start with reflecting on that next time. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.